morning, everyone. Good morning. I think we're about ready to get started here. Oh, there's the bell. Yeah, so we're going to be returning to the book of Jude this morning. So I encourage you all to turn there. Jude is one of Jesus' half-brothers, and he's writing a very short but fascinating letter here. This is our third Sunday in the book. Bob Palacio opened us up with an introduction, and, and last week, Doug Wood took us through the first three verses. This week, we're going to look at Jude, verses 4 through 7. So I'm going to read the passage, we'll pray, and we'll get into the lesson. So Jude 4 through 7, I'm reading from the CSB. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once, once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own positions but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for your word and, and how it instructs us and, and gives us the truth. I pray that the words we would hear be, would be words from your word and, and not from my mouth or from our own thoughts, God. Um, we thank you for, for who you are, and I pray that this text will help us worship you better. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, the book of Jude is, is filled with warnings. It warns against the infiltration of the church from apostates. There's a real danger here, and God will judge those who are ungodly. Our faith, Jude says, is worth contending for. We must defend the gospel so that those in the church are built up in the faith and not caught up in the beliefs of the false teachers. This brings us to a certain tension in the context of our passage this morning. Jude is writing to those who are called by God and share our salvation in Christ. But he's also giving some very serious warnings to keep us from wavering. Let me show this contrast in the text. Notice with me at the end of verse 1 where it says, We are kept for Jesus Christ. And again at the close of the letter in verse 24 where it says, Now to him who is able to keep you, from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. So God will keep you. God keeps secure in salvation those who are his. But we also see exhortations like in verse 21 to keep yourselves in the love of God. That's our responsibility. Those who God keeps are also those who keep themselves in the love of God. We know that God will protect his people, and we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, but we also know that we have a responsibility to persevere and press on. We already saw in verse 3 last week what Jude's goal with this letter was. 
I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Jude saw an urgent need to fight for the gospel. There's something at stake here. In doing this, Jude does not deny God's provision or in protection over his people and his care for his church. That's a tension that stretches throughout the letter, and we'll come back to that as we go on. Verse 4 will tell us more about why he is writing the letter, namely the presence of the false teachers among the believers. He gives us four problems or dangers of these apostates. Then in verses 5 through 7, we'll see three Old Testament stories of falling away. These three stories act as pictures of the danger of falling into the trap of the false teachers. And we will see the deadly influence of the apostates. So that's where we're going to be going. So, beginning with verse 4, we see that some people have snuck into the church by stealth. This isn't a threat coming from outside or the government or the culture. They're already amongst the church. These kinds of people are not believers, of course, as 1 John 2.19 puts so clearly. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it may be made clear that none of them belongs to us. That's 1 John 2.19. The true nature of these individuals will not always be evident, but Jude is telling his audience that they are present. From here, Jude tells us four things about these intruders. If we note the word for, F-O-R, at the beginning of the verse, we'll see, that, we'll see that these things are reasons why we ought to contend for the faith. Jude is answering the question of what is it about these intruders that makes upholding the faith so urgent? So first, these intruders were designated for judgment. Jude recognizes the sovereignty of God in this situation. The presence of these intruders has not caught God by surprise. Rather, he has marked them out for condemnation before they did anything good or bad. God determining long ago who he will judge is not unjust. Quite the opposite, it is only because God acts outside of time that he is able to be just. If the intruders were not part of God's sovereign plan, and God merely knew about the intruders coming and did nothing to stop it, he would be unjust in judging. If God didn't even know about these intruders in the first place, then one could accuse God that his judgments are are rash or reactionary. But because God is sovereign, no one can rightly look at any judgment of God in Scripture and say that he was just being emotional or lacking patience or or just judging just because he wants to. Rather, every one of his judgments flows from his intentional, wise, eternal decree, which is inscrutable and far beyond our thoughts. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says this, The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Now, how does that fit into Jude's argument? How, How does... Jude's saying that they were designated for judgment help his point. And, and more than that, if God is able to, in, in the end, make everything right, why do we need to do anything now? It seems that for Jude, recognizing that the intruders will ultimately fail is an encouragement to persevere in the faith. 
believers have no reason to back down from the fight because God has already shown victory in the end. So that's the first thing that Jude tells us about the intruders, that God will judge them. The next three points are kind of reasons for, for this judgment. So secondly, this verse tells us that the apostates are ungodly. Simply put, the ungodly are those who live without regard for God. This is a sin at a very fundamental level because Christians live in dependence on God. In Jude, ungodly is a very frequent choice for description of these apostates. Listen to how, he, how much he uses it in verses 14 and 15. The Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way, concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. I think Jude might be trying to tell us something about this word. So those who don't have a proper view of God's holiness, those who don't see God's grace rightly, who, um, who don't understand what it means to live under God's authority, live apart from the true God. So this is one reason God's judgment is coming to the intruders. They do not esteem God as most precious as they ought. Next, these apostates abuse the grace of God. Jude says that turning, they turn the grace of God, of our God, into sensuality, or some translations put it, licentiousness. This term often relates to sexual sin. This is likely the case here, considering the variety of references to sexual sin that are throughout Jude and um, defiling the flesh. Now, God's grace is not something that's pliable, that we can choose how we use. God gives grace for his purposes. He has told us what the proper use of his grace is. The intruders here reject God's grace by not using it properly. They cheapen the grace of God. And cheapen not because of its cost to us, but because of its cost to our Lord. And as far as why this means we ought to contend for the faith, for, for, for those who have experienced the grace of God in our lives, this should be personal for us. And, and note the word our in, in our God. He, he doesn't say the grace of God. He says the grace of our God. And I love what Thomas Manton, a Puritan, um, how he puts this. He says, you have a hint of the reason why the apostle writes against them with such a zealous indignation in that word, our. As if he said, that grace whose sweetness we have tasted, whose power we have felt, of that God who has been so kind to us in Christ, whose glory we are bound to promote, shall we see our God and that grace upon which all our hopes stand be abused to such an unclean use? I think he puts that very well. If the gospel has changed us, we should want to see it used rightly. Finally, these apostates deny Christ as master and Lord. The word master here is more rare in its application to Jesus. For most of its uses in the New Testament, master applies to uh, the Father. But, but Jude is taking a term that's often used to describe God and uses it for the Son. 
And so for the terms master and lord, there's not a huge difference between them, at least functionally. Both terms refer to the lordship of Christ. For the intruders, they don't see Jesus as having any authority over their lives. To and for them to deny the, that Jesus is master and lord, it doesn't have to be verbal. Despite anything that they may have professed, the apostles, the apostates live their lives in a blatant disregard for the law of Christ. It's commonly put that you can't have Jesus as Savior and not as your Lord. Jesus will be heralded as supreme in your life, or you have not understood the implications of your salvation. And note the word only here. Jesus will not take second place, nor is he looking for a divided heart. Christ wants whole hearts to be sincerely devoted to him. So, and, and the other thing, too, is if we don't have Jesus as our master and Lord, we will have something else in that place, whether it be our, our own hearts, our own desires, or someone else in our lives, which is, which is why Jude is telling us that we ought to have Christ as our master and Lord. And these are all signs that mark the danger of what these intruders are like and why we must contend so earnestly for the faith. And notice that all of these signs are, are moral. They're not so much as in what they teach, but as more about what they do and where their hearts are at. And this is throughout the book of Jude too. We don't really see a clear, like, here's the doctrinal error that these apostates are teaching. Jude doesn't even use the word false teachers. What, but what Jude does, and, and there's, there's other books in the Bible, like some of the pastorals, that'll you know, go more directly at false doctrine, and it's important to uphold the truth. But what Jude does is he's more focusing on, on the morality of many of these folks and how they're deceiving them by their actions and by the examples that they're setting. So that was verse 4. And Jude will now unpack these assertions. He, d he does this in verses 5 through 16. Jude has just claimed that God will judge these people. Now one could ask, is there any weight behind those words? Or is it just God making empty threats? God's judgment is real and is coming. Jude will show us this in a variety of ways, primarily relying on evidence from how God has acted in history. In verses 5 through 7, Jude points to three stories from the Old Testament as witnesses to show how God, how, to show how God has punished the wicked in the past. He describes God, God's judgment on the wandering Israelites. He describes the fallen angels. And he also talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Each of these witnesses will show a different aspect of the ungodliness of the opponents. But before we go into these three witnesses, Let's look at how the author talks to his audience in verse 5. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once for all. Now there's some translational difficulties there, but it's clear that Jude is not trying to tell his audience anything new. You can see there a connection with the um, all things there, the all things once, once and for all, and in verse 3, the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. So what do believers know once and for all? That faith, that gospel. Jude is not claiming that believers know 
all that there is to know, but they have something that the intruders do not, a very real faith and knowledge of Christ in the gospel. Hebrews 8, in Hebrews 8, God tells us, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. So because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, every believer has come to know God. Believers have a clarity of sight that unbelievers don't have. But the once for all here doesn't mean that we will never doubt or that if you, if you have doubts, you're, you're an unbeliever. Verse 22 cautions us by saying to have mercy on those who waver, meaning we shouldn't be quick, too quick to identify someone with doubts as an apostate. Jude isn't telling us to, to go around pointing fingers um, and, and calling everyone, uh, identifying everyone as these intruders. And he's not telling people to make accusations at the, at the slightest wavering. Some, sometimes people just need to be reminded, and that's, which is part of his point here. Now, Jude is telling us that we need to be reminded despite the fact that we already know, which may seem contradictory. But to Jude, it is vital that we, that we need to be reminded. And we could go on and on talking about why we need reminders, but at the core of it, a reminder of the one true gospel gives us a new experience of the power of the gospel as it works in that moment. Reminders are essential to the daily life of a believer. So let's turn and look at these three witnesses I mentioned earlier. In the next part of verse 5, we have witness number one, God's judgment on the Israelites in the wilderness. The text continues, Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, if you ask someone, who saves Israel out of Egypt? You might get a variety of answers like Moses or, or God. But the word Jude uses here is Jesus, which is curious. Now, if you have a translation that's over a decade old, uh, it probably says Lord there. Uh, but still, Jesus is referenced as Lord throughout the letter, as we saw earlier. What Jude does here is he follows the pattern of several other New Testament authors that ascribe to Christ actions of God in the Old Testament. This text is a pointer to the power, the deity, and eternal nature of the Son of God. But the two aspects of Christ that are the focus of this verse are Christ as Savior and Christ as judge, right? He saved a people out of Egypt, and he later destroyed those people. And he's the very same people that he destroyed, that generation, are the very ones that he saved earlier in the Exodus. Now, scripture is filled with references to how Christ will judge the living and the dead on the last day. Revelation talks about the wrath of the Lamb, now, there are some that think of God as an, as an angry, serious judge, and then Jesus as a, as a joyful, kind, and, and person without wrath. But, that's, but this isn't so. Verses like this remind us of the unity within the Godhead. In Trinitarian terms, we call this inseparable operations. Whenever one person of the Trinity acts, the other two per- people, the other two persons are acting with them. So we see this 
when the, when the Father, Son, and Spirit are all part of the work of creation, right? You have God who create. You have God says, you know, let there be light and all of that. And you go to John and you see um, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it says that He created. And in Genesis one two, you see the Spirit there, and so on. Um, there is so there is no divided will in God, and we also see this with salvation as for those who. Uh, Christ's blood paid for are the very same ones as those who God predestined, who are the very same ones that the Spirit awakens. So it is reasonable to see the Son of God working in the Old Testament. He is at work anywhere we see the Father or the Spirit at work. Now, why does Jude bring our attention to this? He wants people to see that by denying Christ you'll face the same consequences that the Israelites faced back then. Because the Israelites, in some sense, also rejected Christ. There's a consistency to how God acts, and the story of the Israelite rebellion is a clear witness to that. The exodus and the rebellion that follows it is important to understand in the, in the context of the biblical narrative. And it's not only important for... Um, Jude, it's, it's important for its reference in the Psalms, the prophets, and many other New Testament writers. I'm going to l- quickly look at two other passages that shed light on what Jude is doing here in this verse, because Jude is very brief here. First, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 10, which goes into a little more detail of, of Jude verse 5. And there's a couple things I want us to look for here as, as we, that we only saw quickly in Jude. There's a sense in which Christ saves Israel and they rejected him. I also want us to see how an Old Testament story like this one can be used as a warning. And it's also helpful to have just a little more context as to uh, what's going on in this verse in Jude. So, 1 Corinthians 10. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, excuse me, the people sat down to eat and to drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes, and don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has, over, has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now, there's a lot to see there, and we don't have time to exposit all of it. 
But I want us to think about verse 13 there, where it says, where Paul says that our temptations are common to everyone. In one sense, that's an encouragement because we know that we are not alone in fighting temptation. But in the context of this passage and what we saw in Jude, it's also a warning. We can't look at the sin struggles of ancient Israel and think that we're so much better than them and that we're immune to the temptations that they faced or that we're not going to face the judgments that they faced. We can't laugh at the, at the Israelites who, who whined, um, wanting to return back to slavery in Egypt as if that was so much better. And when, when we ourselves are constantly faced with temptations to return back to our bondage to sin. So Paul in verse 12 here says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. But then he reminds us, but God is faithful. Tension. Let's explore this tension a bit more. Because there's also a question that arises here if Jude is using examples from Israel for how God acts with the church. So can those warnings still apply? Which is a question worth asking, because many faithful believers will go too far in relating Israel and the church. One way to take it too far is to look at Jude 5 and see Jesus saving people, followed by destroying for unbelief, and going... You know, that sounds an awful lot like losing your salvation. Is Jude saying that you can be saved from sin and then turn away? Can a true believer commit apostasy? I'm not sure that's what he's saying here. Jude is building an analogy to physical Israel that, that won't hold at every point. And there's another text that refers to the same rebellion of the wandering Israelites that may be illuminating here. Hebrews 3-4 through 4 uses Psalm 95 to show that the generation of Israelites that that generation of Israelites will not enter God's rest. And there, he clarifies that it's not just a physical, temp temporal rest, but that this judgment had eternal consequences. And there he applies the warning from Psalm 95 of the wandering Israelites to his audience. They are real warnings with real consequences. But he clarifies this, that how you respond to the warnings reveal what your standing was before God in the first place. He says this in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For, this is key, we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly till the end, the reality that we had at the start. So those who heed the warnings and persevere are the ones that Christ united with himself in the first place. Those who are definitively hardened by sin's deceptions in unbelief suffer the consequences of the warning, but were never believers. To put in Jude's language, those who keep themselves in the love of God are the ones that God keeps eternally. And don't get the order confused here. God doesn't keep us because we do the right things and heed the warnings and persevere. No, it's the other way around. We keep ourselves in the love of God as a result of God sovereignly keeping us. God uses warnings and our faith to persevere us for his purposes. Now let's look at the second witness. God's judgment on the angels. Verse 6 says this, 
And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. I wish I could tell you that that was the most obscure or strange part in Jude, but there are plenty more obscure references on the way. There's, and there's a considerable amount of debate surrounding this verse as to what Jude is referring to. There's a parallel passage in 2 Peter 2.4 that may be worth comparing. Brian Fox had an excellent discussion of this when he was teaching that passage. In both passages, there's angels who sinned and are now bound in some sense. Some, some say that this refers to all the demons that fell with Satan. I would argue that what we see in, this is what we see in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where the sons of God have children with the daughters of man. And I think you could argue that angels are, are referred elsewhere as, as sons of God. So that's, that's who are the sons of God in Genesis 6. This interpretation of Genesis 6 was quite pervasive in Jewish tradition. And one part of the Jewish tradition that points to this is the apocryphal book of First Enoch, which Jude quotes later. It's possible that Jude wasn't using the tradition here, but if that was the case, it would be strange if he didn't clarify himself more. His brevity here seems to, in, to assume that his readers would know what he's talking about. If you're looking for a textual indicator for this interpretation, I'd point to the word likewise or just as at the beginning of verse 7. He's connecting the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah to the sin of the angels. So there's some similarity in the nature of their sins. Now, Jude's use of the tradition obviously doesn't mean that he agrees with it at every point. But he does seem to think that this is true. Now, we are told that angels can't marry, but we're not told that they can't have sexuality. It seems that the angels are able to take on physical bodies. We see this with um, Abraham in Genesis, where we have three angel there's three angels who visit them and they eat with them. Um, so, and, but faithful believers can fall on either side of the interpretation there. So, what does Jude charge as their sin here? He says, they did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling. That word position or domain in verse 6 refers to the sphere of influence that they had. Jude also says that they abandoned their proper dwelling. This word for dwelling or abode refers to the bounds that they had. God had sovereignly given them a certain position and a certain authority that they chose to depart from. Their departure was not left unpunished. The intruders, similarly, will not escape the judgment of God. And verse 6 tells, tells us that these angels, that he has kept, in, kept them in eternal chains in deep darkness for judgment on the great day. Remember that the he here, that the he has kept, is still Christ Jesus. Jesus has kept, in, kept them in eternal chains and deep darkness for judgment on the great day. So the, and their current imprisonment here is not the final judgment. But they are kept in miserable conditions. It might not be literal chains, but the glory, the freedom, and authority that they once had, they no longer enjoy. This kind of ties to what we were looking at earlier with the, with the lordship of Jesus, where they didn't see themselves under um, God as their master and lord. Instead, they chose them, themselves as the authority. And notice the word 
kept in these verses. In where he says the angels did not keep their own positions, and then Christ has kept them in eternal chains and deep darkness. This is kind of analogous to what we saw earlier in Jude, where in Jude we are kept for Jesus Christ by God, and also we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. So, likewise, when the angels did not keep themselves where they were supposed to, God says, okay, here's how I will keep you in chains, in, in deep darkness. So, we see here that God is not one of disorder. He has ordered the world to work in a certain way. And we see this from the very beginning of the Bible. God created man under him, under God, and he has tasked humanity with the job of ruling over and stewarding creation. So you have God above humanity and then creation. In the fall, that gets flipped on its head, where the creature tells the humans that they can be like God. And that disorder leads to chaos. Creation is at its best when it's under the authority of its sovereign designer and all have a contentment and trust in our designer. So, for witness number three, we have God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns. Verse seven says this, Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is found in Genesis 19. God judged the towns for wickedness there. There's a lot going on there from homosexuality to rape to, to many other sins. But, but many today don't want to see homosexuality as part of, part of the reason for why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, what, where this text says perversions or some translations unnatural desire or other translations going after strange flesh, this is an indicator that same-sex relations are in view here. Now, Jude is not saying that all his opponents committed the exact same sin as those cities, although they probably did commit sexual sins, given the amount of references to it here. But the emphasis here is that God will judge those who sin now, just as he judged those who sinned in Sodom and Gomorrah. This judgment, like the judgments before it, aren't merely historical facts and things that we can just read about, but they function typologically for what's in store for those who rebel. God punished those in Sodom and Gomorrah with an eternal fire. Likewise, those in rebellion against God will suffer eternal consequences. We have stories like these as examples to us to be warned. Jude tells us that here explicitly. God's holiness is not to be trifled with. That's, that's what all of these witnesses testify to. Sin will be judged and Christ will win in the end. But there is a real danger. Therefore, we ought to contend earnestly for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage is all about. Now, it is worth reiterating that this letter is bookended by the reality that God will keep us and present us blameless. For believers, there is no condemnation and no judgment because we are in Christ. 
Because of Christ alone, we are free from wrath, not because of anything we do. We deserve those eternal judgments that were listed in all of those warnings just as much as they did. But because of Christ's work, we are free. So when we see this warning, we shouldn't be discouraged, but we should run to Christ and we should seek him as our refuge, realizing that when we put our faith in him, Christ will save us by his grace alone. 